0: Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you once again from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, now in the wee hours of March 18th, a date that marks two simultaneous turning points in the Arab Revolution 12 years ago in 2011. The Western military intervention in Libya and the start of the revolution in Syria, uh, which also happened, I will add, at the risk of seeming self-indulgent, to coincide with the same week that I lost my radio show of 20 years on WBAI. So, uh, kind of a turning point in my own life as well, and in the years since then, a lot of my activist and scrivening energies have gone into trying to raise a voice of support for the increasingly besieged Syrian revolution, both through my work on Counter Vortex and with the local group Syria Solidarity New York City. Now, in this podcast, I'm going to try to draw the link between these two simultaneous developments in Libya and Syria in March of 2011 and how they affected the trajectory of the Arab Revolution. And I'll start off by saying that while I had very deep misgivings about the Western intervention in Libya, I did not view it through the standard anti-imperialist left prism or narrative, which was that the whole episode in Libya was a neocon regime change conspiracy from the start to get rid of the anti-imperialist Muammar Gaddafi and put a domesticated regime in place no by 2011 Gaddafi was already himself domesticated the sanctions against his autocratic regime had been lifted western oil companies were back in libya and the regime change imperative came from the Libyan people themselves, and the U.S. and Western imperialism were basically playing catch-up and attempting to keep the situation under some degree of control. And my fear at the time, somewhat vindicated, alas, is that this would represent a thermidor in the Arab Revolution. A point at which the Arab peoples themselves would cease to be the primary protagonists and the whole thing would get co opted into a great power game. But I also admit that I was torn because I perceived that the outside world did have responsibilities to the Libyans as Gaddafi turned his guns on his own people and certainly the popular revolutionary forces. And yes, that's what they were, that had seized control in Benghazi and were promised a general massacre as Gaddafi advanced on the city, were quite manifestly very happy about the intervention. Let's go over the basic outline of events again. The first glimmer of unrest was an early February internet call for a day of rage on the 17th of that month, which was met with preemptive arrests. Then, on February 15th, still two days before the planned Day of Rage, a vigil for liberation of political prisoners in Benghazi spontaneously escalated into a large protest, demanding release of the new detained. Security forces up the ante with tear gas, water cannons, and baton charges. On the weekend of February 20th, it tipped into armed struggle, as members of the security forces defected to the protesters, arming them and helping them to form militias. Gaddafi responded by threatening rivers of blood, quote unquote, and favorably invoking the Tiananmen Square massacre. After the revolutionary forces seized control in the eastern city of Benghazi. Regime forces advanced on the city, and Gaddafi now favorably invoked the Israeli bombardment of Gaza as an example of what he would do to Benghazi. Gaddafi was already unleashing deadly repression in Tripoli, and UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Navi Pillay, also a harsh critic of the US and Israel, was warning that, quote, systematic attacks against the civilian population may amount to crimes against humanity, unquote. The UN Security Council approved a resolution calling for the establishment of a no-fly zone for Libya on March 17th, but of course the aim of the military operation, led by the UK, France, and the United States, acting under the rubric of NATO, quickly became regime change. However, it is imperative to recall that the calls for regime change, or revolution, first emerged from below, from the Libyan people. And I submit that the West's interest in the Libya intervention was the imperative to control the political trajectory of the Arab Spring and keep it from getting out of hand. Now, what was the juxtaposition of forces on the ground in Libya at this point. In one corner, there was a small coterie of aspiring bourgeois democratic technocrats being aggressively groomed by London, Paris, and Washington. In the other, a few fanatical cells of jihadi types, and in the middle, a very large swath of very angry Libyans who had no particular ideological commitment but basically secular and progressive pro-democratic instincts. It was this last category that briefly, at least, put in place a model of revolutionary grassroots democratic self-government in Benghazi, in defense of which the airstrikes began on March 19th. And I perceived that this moment was critical. Up until this point, The Arab Spring had been a story about popular revolutions shaking off dictatorships, whether those within Washington's orbit, the big majority, or without, as in Libya and Syria. Although Islamists had been on board in the protest movements, the basic thrust had been secular and democratic. This was a very poor propaganda environment, for Al Qaeda and like elements, which had since the start of the year been playing catch up as grassroots pro democratic movements seized the initiative. This represented an historic opening following the dystopian dialectic of jihad versus GWAT, global war on terrorism, that had been hegemonic in the long aftermath. Of 9-11. Now, suddenly, there was a sense that all that could be changing. Western intervention created a very, very good propaganda environment for al-Qaeda. The story could start the change to one about the Islamic world fighting crusaders again. The popular democratic and secular elements could be quickly sidelined and civil movements pushed aside by armed factions. The hypocrisy of Washington, ostensibly coming to the defense of protesters in Libya, as it was underwriting repression of protesters in Yemen and Bahrain, with only lukewarm criticism for these client states, betrayed an agenda to impose control rather than to save lives. The fact that the U.S. funded and supported war crimes, roughly equivalent to those of Gaddafi, was now accused of in the Israeli-Gaza offensive of two years earlier, also aided al-Qaeda's propagandists. The military intervention, rather than the dictatorships, could now become the central issue. While the Arab Spring created a poor propaganda environment, Both for imperialism and the self declared jihad, NATO's Libya intervention threatened to reverse this situation. Reigniting a slightly more abundant jihad could be the cost of imperialism's bid to control the political trajectory of the Arab revolutions. And by controlling the political trajectory, I mean creating an example in which freedom and free trade, quote-unquote, were neatly conflated and making sure that at least one revolutionary movement in the region would be politically beholden to Western imperialism upon taking power. And even if such a stable client regime could not be established, as in fact was the case, (laughs) the Jihad versus Jihad paradigm is ultimately recuperable by imperialism and could reverse all of the progress represented by the Arab Revolution. Which brings us to Syria. Twelve years ago this week, the Syrian revolution began with peaceful pro-democracy protests. The first demonstrations broke out in the city of Dara on March 18th after local schoolchildren painted a mural depicting scenes and slogans from the recent revolutions in other Arab countries and were detained and tortured by the police. The Bashar Assad regime responded to the demonstrations with serial massacres. After months of this, the Free Syrian Army emerged, initially as a self-defense militia to protect protesters, and again led by defectors from the regime. But the situation soon escalated to an armed insurgency. The regime lost control of large areas of the country, and local civil resistance committees, backed by the FSA, seized control. Assad then escalated to levels of violence rarely seen on earth since World War II. The logic of the regime's response was from the start, To terrorize the populace back into submission, and ultimately to destroy society itself in the areas outside regime control. Massive aerial bombardment, including with illegal cluster munitions and crude but massively destructive barrel bombs, soon escalated to serial chemical weapons attacks. The death toll in the war is now estimated at over a half million, with over a hundred thousand of those the disappeared who died in the dictatorship's prison gulag. A similar number are still believed to be in detention. Photographs documenting the mass death and torture in this gulag were released by a regime defector known as Cesar in 2015. This resulted, at least, in passage four years later of the Cesar Syria Civilian Protection Act in the United States, which imposes sanctions on individuals and industries directly linked to Assad's military apparatus. It only took effect in 2020. Over 13 million have been displaced, nearly half having fled the country as refugees, more in precarious and impoverished camps within the diminishing enclaves of rebel control, Syria has long been the world's greatest displacement crisis. Russia massively intervened on behalf of the regime in 2015, bringing far greater firepower to bear in the air war and virtually destroying the city of Aleppo. When the rebel-held section of the city finally fell the following year, The population faced massacres at the hands of regime forces, in what one UN representative called, quote, a complete meltdown of humanity. The thousands who fled Aleppo to the remaining pocket of rebel held territory in the north are still coming under regime and Russian bombardment today. Moscow's underreported sideshow to the war in Ukraine. Iran also has a massive military footprint in Syria, training and commanding pro-regime militias. And this is the little-recognized context for how ISIS and other jihadist elements were able to gain a foothold in Syria by appealing to the desperate and betrayed. But it is even less recognized that the secular and pro-democratic civil resistance that began the revolution. 12 years ago, still exists, in spite of everything, principally in the remaining pocket of rebel control, Idlib province and a part of neighboring Aleppo province in the north. Unfortunately, with the Free Syrian Army fractured, this pocket is now dominated by Turkish-backed militias, and the jihadist Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, HTS, which have divided it into spheres of control despite civil resistance from the enclave's besieged pro democratic forces. The other significant area, precariously outside regime control, is the Kurdish region of Rojava in the northeast, where things have also taken a turn for the worse over the past years. Rebel Kurds with an anarchist influence ideology. Established an autonomous zone there in 2012, but this was greatly reduced by a Turkish invasion of Rojava, green lighted by Trump in late 2019. Now, much of the Kurdish majority area in the north, which had been the heartland of Rojava, is under occupation by Turkey and its collaborationist forces and partly cleansed of Kurds. Meanwhile, the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, are occupying Raqqa to the south and the Arab-majority areas around the city, which they took from ISIS, with U.S. air support in 2017, with the inevitable grave toll in civilian casualties. This is yet further exacerbated Kurdish-Arab tensions in northern Syria heightening the risk of ethnic war. Most tragically, the Kurds were forced by the Turkish invasion of their territory into an alliance with the Assad regime, despite being ultimately at odds with Damascus on the question of Kurdish autonomy. So the SDF have actually invited Assadist troops into liberated Raqqa, the first regime presence in the city since 2013. And I will point out that this happened with the open acquiescence of the United States. As well as a tragedy, this is a bitter irony. The regime's return to Raqqa after a U.S.-led campaign to take the city from ISIS is the clearest evidence we need of a U.S. tilt to Assad in the Syrian war. The diluted conventional wisdom of left, right, and center notwithstanding, the U.S. provided some aid to the Free Syrian Army early in the war, but has actually restrained rebel forces from using this aid against Assad, insisting they only use it to fight ISIS and other jihadist forces, such as the HTS, which is the successor organization to the Syrian Qaeda franchise, the Nusra Front, which is now ostensibly disbanded. There has been a small handful of times that the U.S. has bombed forces aligned with the Assad regime, each time to requisite protest from the American anti-war left. Meanwhile, there was overwhelming silence from the anti-war forces in the West Over Trump's virtual destruction of Raqqa, despite the massive civilian toll. Because in that case, the US was fighting ISIS, not the Assad regime. Even the world media barely paid note to the destruction of Raqqa. This despite the fact that the Assad regime has certainly killed more Syrians than has ISIS. The UN Human Rights Commission in February 2021 released a report finding that actions by the Assad regime during the Syrian war have likely constituted, quote, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and other international crimes, including genocide. End quote. The UN and human rights groups have issued such findings repeatedly to little media coverage. The charge of genocide officially requires the world to act under the genocide convention, but the world is no longer even paying attention. Meanwhile, an update on what has ensued in Libya in the intervening years. In June 2011, the International Criminal Court brought charges against Gaddafi for crimes against humanity, but the case was terminated in November when he was hunted down and killed by revolutionary forces. This was an extrajudicial execution, which I oppose, and it certainly would have been better for all concerned if he had been extradited to The Hague to stand trial for his crimes. Twelve years later, Libya still doesn't have a functioning government. There has been a profusion of armed factions with areas of local control, many of which have committed ghastly human rights abuses, especially in their treatment of black African migrants passing through the country. Among these factions was briefly ISIS, although they were routed from their stronghold in the city of Sirte by rival militias fairly shortly. And the attitude of the so-called anti-imperialist left in the West toward all of this has been one of schadenfreude, taking glee in the chaos in Libya, because for them it vindicates their anti-intervention and anti-revolution and pro-dictatorship position. But I'll point out that there has also been some genuine progress in Libya, particularly in the situation of the Amazir or Berber people of the Nafusa Mountains in the west, whose language and culture had been almost completely suppressed by Gaddafi, and they have now established their own self-governing autonomous zone in their territory. And there is a literary and linguistic and cultural renaissance going on there, with publications and radio stations and so on now flourishing in their own language, something you never hear about from either the mainstream or alternative media. And I'll also point out that Libya has definitely become a playing field for the great powers, as I feared back in 2011. But surprise, surprise, not primarily for the U.S. and the West. Basically, there are now two governments in Libya, the internationally recognized government in Tripoli, which is in alliance with various Islamist militias and the more secular, but also quite brutal, regime of the warlord Khalifa Haftar in Benghazi in the East. And they've intermittently been at war with each other over the past years, and the Tripoli regime is primarily being backed by Turkey, and Haftar's de facto regime in the East is being backed by Russia, including mercenaries from the Wagner Group. And the Russian role in exacerbating the conflict, of course, is something that the schadenfreude crowd will never look at or acknowledge. And this is what has sort of taken me by surprise. I correctly anticipated in March 2011 that the dystopian G-Watt paradigm would be rebooted. What I didn't imagine is that it would largely be Russian imperialism rather than U.S. imperialism that would play this role, and that it would be cheered on not by neocons, but by anti-imperialists and self-identified leftists in Libya, but especially in Syria. Now, this is not to completely exculpate the United States by any means. The Syrian city of Raqqa, the de facto ISIS capital, was essentially destroyed by U.S. bombardment, but overwhelmingly, it has been Russia's air war, reigning death from above, and Russia's proxy war, grooming forces on the ground. It was Russian warplanes that essentially destroyed the city of Aleppo, the country's largest, which was not held by ISIS, but by a loose alliance of rebel forces, some under the umbrella of the Free Syrian Army, who in fact had ejected ISIS from the city When they tried to establish a foothold there. But of course, Russian propaganda cynically portrayed the rebels in Aleppo as ISIS and uniformly jihadist. And Russia has meanwhile been making a grab for Syria's oil and gas resources. Under a Moscow Damascus deal announced in 2018, Russia is to have exclusive rights to exploit hydrocarbons in Syria in exchange for military support to the Assad regime. And the most perverse irony of the tanky and Assadist and Gaddafi nostalgist propaganda is that you hear over and over again that if the West intervened against Assad, then Syria would look like Libya today, overlooking the fact that Syria, where the West did not intervene militarily against the dictatorship, and where Bashar Assad has been free to carry out mass murder with perfect impunity, is in far worse shape than Libya today. One of the greatest humanitarian disasters on the planet, not even close, a complete reversal of reality. And now the Assad regime and its propagandists are exploiting the devastating earthquake that has left some 5,000 dead in Syria in a bid to get the sanctions against the regime lifted and diplomatic recognition restored. Despite the fact that the majority of the earthquake casualties in Syria are in the rebel-controlled northwest of the country, where the regime has no presence other than to make everything worse by bombing hospitals and water pumping stations and other civilian infrastructure. So today, March 18th, my comrades in Syria Solidarity NYC will be holding an anniversary rally in Times Square in commemoration of the start of the Syrian revolution against Bashar Assad 12 years ago under the slogans no normalizing Assad, no reconciliation with Assad, UN stop normalizing and funding Assad. Save Syrian People, Not the Assad Regime, and The People Demand the Fall of the Regime. This last, The People Demand the Fall of the Regime, being the original slogan of the Arab Revolution that was heard from Tunisia to Egypt to Yemen to Bahrain to Libya and to Syria in that utopian moment in the spring of 2011, and which remains in nearly all these cases, but especially in Syria, just as relevant today, 12 years later. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon to keep this dissident voice alive. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance and rant on you next time.